theyeshiva.net. Let me begin with a story or an anecdote that they tell about a, uh, a king who went hunting in the forest and of course like all good stories he got lost and there was a rain and a storm and in the horrible weather he lost his way and he lost his entourage and he was one alone stranded in a vald in the wilderness, in a forest. And uh, as night takes over and the hungry, undomesticated animals are looking for a meal, he hears them approaching closer and closer and feels what a pity to end his life as a king in the abdomen of a lioness. And so as he uh, panics and searches for shelter, he falls upon an uh, old hut with a little light and he pounds on the door and an old peasant opens the door for him, takes him in, closes the door. The poor king is drenched, gives him a hot soup, a hot cup of tea, a change of clothes. He didn't have a bed, but he had some straw, gave him a place to sleep the night. And the king wakes up in the morning and he says, uh, you know that I'm the king of this country and I'm going to reward you handsomely. He says, I think you just went a little crazy from the fear that uh, has overtaken you. It's normal, it's natural, you'll go home, you'll sleep for a few days, hopefully you'll come back to your uh, tzuzin and you'll come back to your sanity. He says, no, 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 I'm the real king. Anyway, they get into a whole debate, he shows the king off, says, have a wonderful day. A few days later, indeed, he's summoned to the palace and he's standing in front of the, the royal monarch of the country. He can't believe it. <laughs> he says, I thought you lost it. I see you're the king. He says, I want to reward you for saving my life because my kingship and all my richness and success would mean nothing if I were to uh, be killed, if I were to become a prey for animals that night. But what am I going to give you? Give you money, give you diamonds, give you gold, give you silver? For me, that's meaningless. I have so much of it. It won't constitute a real reward. I want to give you something that will cost me. Something that will make me feel that I had to sacrifice for it. And the king thinks, he says, you know what I'm going to give you? My most beloved bird. The king had a nightingale bird. The nightingale bird, for those who are familiar or unfamiliar has the most beautiful voice and sings the most exquisite bird-like melodies. And for this king, the nightingale was priceless. When he was depressed, when he was down, when he was melancholy in a bad mood, he would go into his room and listen to the nightingale sing and his spirits were uplifted. And he tells this peasant, he says, I'm going to give you my most precious commodity, my most precious item, my, my nightingale. My lovely, my beloved bird, I'm going to give you as a sign of friendship and affection and reward for what you have done. And the peasant thanks him for the bird, then off he goes. A few years pass and the king is hunting in the same place. 
and he falls upon the same hut and he remembers the whole story and he runs to the hut and he knocks on the door and the peasant opens the door, he's a few years older and the king looks at him and he says, how is my nightingale doing? Are you enjoying it? Is it inspiring you? Is it stimulating you? Is it uplifting you? What do you say about its voice, about its exquisite melodies, about its heavenly charm? Let me see and hear my nightingale. And the peasant looks at him and says, Your Majesty, I don't know what you're talking about. What nightingale? He says, You remember a few years ago when you saved my life? He says, Of course I remember, Your Majesty. You came to my palace and I gave you that bird, my nightingale. How is it doing? He says, Ah, 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 I'll tell you what happened. It's interesting. I took the bird and that night I cooked it. And I was trying to eat it, but the meat was so tough, it was so hard, it wasn't really edible. I couldn't really understand what the king's intention with this gift was. But you'll be proud of me, I'm a good chef. And as a good chef, I sautéed it with the right onions and potatoes and other vegetables. And it turned into a beautiful, wonderful dinner. And I want to thank you for giving me such a beautiful and delicious dinner. That's the story, that's the anecdote. But uh, it's not just an anecdote, it uh, captures a truth about perspective. For what one person is a nightingale that can produce the most beautiful melodies is for another person, a piece of hard meat that's not really edible but with some onions and potato and probably barbecue sauce and french fries on the side, it makes for a uh, satisfactory Supper of a makam she'ein ish is a herring fish in a time of hunger. This also can constitute a meal. Why do I say this? As we explore the basics of emuna of Jewish faith, we come now to the theme of Torah and mitzvahs, and this is something that uh, many people who have emailed questions or have given in questions or emailed them uh, to the uh, to uh, at the yeshiva.net have raised. And this is what I want to address this evening. What is the purpose and meaning of Torah? What is the function of mitzvahs? It seems often to be so burdensome, so much pressure. Or as somebody wrote, why would God care if I would be a free person? I would have loved the Ten Commandments to begin and say, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of Egypt in order to set you free. And here are my commandments. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, with whomever you want. Free at last. Now go chill out and have a wonderful day. Instead, he says, he took me out of one Egypt and he put me into a worse Egypt. At least, the man says, in the real Egypt, I could hide in the bathroom. But here they tell me, they taught me in school, I can't even hide in the bathroom because he knows what's happening in the bathroom too. So he says, it's the worst type of conceivable bondage I have absolutely no freedom. What would be the purpose of this? What would be the function of this? How can I make peace with this? Why should an intelligent person embrace this? And many of you who have sent in these questions wrote it in these words or in other words, one form or another form. Which brings us also to the question of how do I understand or appreciate reward and punishment? I've always been taught a Judaism that scares the living daylights out of me. That if I do the wrong thing one day, the Lord is going to punish me. He's going to barbecue me. I'm going to suffer terribly. I came to hate my religion. It's so much based on fear. Always about punishment, punishment, punishment. You can never get away with anything. If I dress wrong, if I eat wrong, if I don't do this, if I do this, 
he sees, he examines, he notices everything, and one day I'm going to be punished terribly. Can you allow me to have a little more peace in my Judaism? That's a good question. Anybody relates to this question? You don't have to all raise your hands at once, please. Okay. Listen, this is, this is a loaded topic and there's a lot to say, but at least an old proverb that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. There's no way to exhaust every dimension here, but let's at least begin one aspect of this. Let me uh, remind you of a scene, of an event. And it's this scene that contains tremendous perspective, tremendous wisdom. Hashem reveals Himself to people throughout Sefer Bereshis continuously. To many people, at many occasions. Good people, great people, and not such great people. For example, Hashem speaks to Adam, speaks to the snake, speaks to Chava, speaks to Noyach, speaks to Avram, speaks to Hagar, speaks to Avimelech, speaks to Lavan. Speaks to Yitzchak, speaks to Yaakov, speaks to Rivka. All of these people receive communication from Hashem in one way or another. In one instance, does it ever say how he spoke to them? What did it feel like? How did they know it was God and they're not schizophrenic? How were they sure this was a prophecy and they weren't delusional? How did they know? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? I don't know. It doesn't say the Torah does not say how Hashem reveals Himself to the human being throughout Bereshis. Suddenly in Shmois, the story changes. He wants to reveal Himself to Moshe Rabbeinu. He would be the leader to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, turn them into a nation, and give them their eternal constitution and blueprint for life, which we call the Torah. I would expect the following scene. Hashem el Avram lech lecha Vayidaber Hashem, etc. Vayoymer Hashem, Vayoymer Hashem al Moshe. Do this and this. I am so and so. This is what we need. This is what I want. That's not what happens. Suddenly, for the first time in recorded history in Torah, there's a whole what somebody called firework show. And a little more dramatic even than July 4th. There's a whole show going on. Vayere love. Hashem belabas eish mitoy chasne v'hine asne boye beish v'asne nenuoko. God appears in a burning bush. The bush is burning and the bush is not being consumed. It's not being destroyed. And Moshe says, Asurun of Eres Amara, God loves him, Adu aloyivar asna. Let me go and approach and understand this unique phenomenon. Why doesn't the bush get consumed? Vayar Hashem kisar liras. When Hashem sees that he went to look, he calls out to him, Moshe, Moshe, he says, Hineni. And the rest, as they say, is history. If Moshe wouldn't have turned his neck to look, I don't know what would have happened, but history certainly would have been different. And I don't know if we would be sitting here tonight discussing the basics of Emunah. I ask one question. Why this whole show? Why this whole symbolism? Why this whole extraordinary supernatural phenomenon? 
So this is not my question. This is a question that has been raised in many medrashim, in many mefarshim, in many svarim, in pshat and in remez and in drush and in soid. And we discussed some shiurim, some different meanings. But tonight, I want to address one perspective. Because this perspective, I think, is very relevant to life and very relevant to Amuna, very relevant to understand Judaism. It's a perspective that has been coined by the Tzemach Tzedek. Tzemach Tzedek was one of the great Poiskim, halachic authorities of his generation, as well as one of the great mystics of his generation, the grandson of the Balatanya. And in the footnote to his grandfather's Sefer, Lekut Torah and Parsha Shlach, he says this Gedank, this Torah, based on his grandfather's Torah and really based on a Zoya. It's almost clearly in the Zoya, but he connects it with the Sneh. The Meraglim said, Eretz Eicheles Yoshvel, the land of his Eretz Yisrael, eats up its inhabitants. The Sneh is Hasneh Einenu Uko. So there's a contrast here. The burning bush doesn't eat up the bush. There's a fire, but it doesn't eat it up. It doesn't destroy it. When it comes to the Meraglim, they say the land of Israel is Eicheles Yoshvel. It eats up its inhabitants. Eicheles means consumes, destroys, obliterates. Like when you eat something up, it's gone. What's the contrast? There was a fundamental, I'm going to say it in my own words, the way I understood his writing, his note, his footnote, his comment. There was a fundamental question here about the function of religion, the function of faith, the function of Amunah, the function of Judaism. Moshe Rabbeinu was not just another person hearing the voice of God, like Sefer Bereshis. Moshe Rabbeinu is the person who is receiving the communication that is destined to change history. He is the one who is going to give the Torah to the Jewish people. He is going to be the one who is going to mold them into a nation, bring them to Har Sinai, and create and give them the entire constitution that will guide the destiny and the daily life of the Jewish people for millennia, for thousands of years. Before he embarks on his mission, there is a message being communicated. What is the message? The message is, Emuna by definition is about a sneh boye boyesh. It's about a heart on fire, a mind on fire, a soul on fire. It's about fire, passion, commitment, zeal, emotion, and a lot of hergish. Hasne boyebeish. But remember this: Hasne einenu ukol. The function of Torah, function of Amunna, the function of mitzvahs, is never ever here to destroy the human spirit to hijack human individuality, to crush human creativity, to destroy the human heart, the human imagination, human passion, the human mind, reason, curiosity, and the creativity of that creature we call the human being. If anybody is going to teach Torah, your Torah, Moshe's Torah, in a way that the students, the children, the youth, the recipients are going to feel that you want to get them on fire and in the process we want to destroy them. And when I say destroy, I don't mean only physical. I mean psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. 
I want to crush you. I want you to conform. I want you to be repressed. I want you to be dull. I want you to stop feeling, stop thinking, stop being. Just follow. Then remember, this is not God's fire. If it's God's fire, hasnei nenuukl. If it's a getlech fire, if it's divine, it will not destroy. It will not crush. It will not make a person feel small, inadequate, worthless, meaningless, fearful, depressed, lowly, and distraught. If yes, it may be another fire. Or as the Medrash Rabbah puts it beautifully, Eishel Maila Sarefes, a divine flame, it burns, creates a great passion, but it's not here to destroy, it doesn't destroy. So, here's the principle in life. Whenever a Yiddishkeit is being taught, and the person learning it, or teaching it, whether it's a father or a mother, a child, a young man, a young woman, a boy, a girl, a Rebbe, a Rosh Yeshiva, a teacher, a Mashgiach, a Mashpia, a leader, whatever, whoever it is, any position of teacher or student. And what they're experiencing is a Judaism that is diminishing you. It's making you small. It's trying to make you less than you are. It's trying to dull your mind, dull your heart. It's trying to cut you down. That's what it's doing. And it's doing it in the name of God. <laughs> Because if I would do it in my own name, then you wouldn't listen. So I always do it in the name of God. It's not me. It's never me. It's always the Bashefer. It's the Go argue. So Hashem is telling Moshe, remember, I'm revealing myself to you in one way. My fire. Whoops. The mic didn't agree. <laughs> The Miraglim said, the Miraglim said, Eretz oicheles yoishvei. That helps. The Miraglim said, Eretz oicheles yoishvei. The ultimate destiny of Judaism is to go into a land, to go into an environment that's going to eat everybody up. It wants everybody to be the same. It wants everybody to conform. Let's not go there. Here, this is the place. There, it's a dangerous place. Eretz Oicheles Yeshvai. Now, number one, an interesting mitzvah. Somebody once asked me an interesting question. Everybody knows the Pasuk in Vayikra. It's said every single morning. A koyin is coming and he's baking a beautiful pancake made of wonderful matzah every morning. There were many minachas, many meal offerings, grain offerings, the Beis HaMikdash. And he wants to put in a little honey. You know, when your wife makes tonight, Thursday night, just flour and water, it's not such a batam techala. So Baruch Hashem, we put in eggs and oil and apsoilis meruba ala iker. But all he wants to do is put in a little honey, not even sugar, not sugar chas v'shalom. Sugar is is a little honey. To make the to make the mincheke they all this is what they eat all day before the before the, 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 the main meal this is what they eat no honey so you want to put in a little yeast 
The min chol serve chol dvash. No honey and no yeast. Yeast. I don't want any extra preservatives, extra curricular activities. We want the mincha itself. You have the flour, you have the water, you have oil, nothing else. Right there, a few come later it says, Lo yisaj melach. Lo yisaj melach. Al kol karbon chotakriv melach. Every single carbon needs salt. No matter what. A grain offering, an animal offering, a bird offering. Every carbon had to be salted before it was put on the altar. Why? Salt? Yeah. Honey not, yeast not. Why? The answer is simple and profound. Whenever you ask from somebody to make a sacrifice, a carbon, you have to be careful. How do I know when a sacrifice is healthy? And when a sacrifice is unhealthy. Somebody says, I want you to sacrifice. How do I distinguish between a sacrifice that's abuse and a sacrifice that's noble? A sacrifice that, that elevates, a sacrifice that destroys. Some people make sacrifices because they're indoctrinated that as a result of their sacrifice, they're going to come to heaven and get 72 pies of pizza. I'm sorry, Sushi. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is a dangerous word. Make sacrifices. Sometimes women or men are told, you have to sacrifice for your marriage. Stay in the marriage. You have to sacrifice for this institution. Stay here. You have to sacrifice for X, Y, and Z. When do you know that a sacrifice is wonderful? It's a carbon. Adam kiyakriv mikam carbon lashem. Reach nichoyach. Or a sacrifice is actually... Stupid. <laughs> don't, don't sacrifice. Nobody asked you to sacrifice. How do you know? The Torah makes one distinction. Salt, yeah. You put, you put yeast and honey, not. Why? You don't want anything else? Don't put anything else. Salt, yeah. There's a big difference between salt, yeast and honey. The chefs in the crowd will correct me if I'm wrong. Yeast and honey are... Outer outs uh, preservatives ingredients that come and disturb the natural taste of the food in which you're placing the yeast or the honey. You may like the taste, but it's a new taste. It's a taste from outside. The function of salt is actually to accentuate, to bring out, to reveal the taste of the food. I believe in Japan, some people eat watermelon with salt. You know that? You know that there's people who eat watermelon. You could look it up. There's people who eat watermelon. So I wondered once, somebody told me about it, well, why would anybody eat watermelon with salt? People eat ice cream with salt. So then they explained to me, you don't know what salt is. Salt actually opens up certain taste buds that they could feel and experience the watermelon much more than without salt. So the Torah comes and says, there's two types of sacrifices. How do I illustrate it? I once had to address a theme like this. So I asked the audience, they have been through... Uh, They've been around the block eight or nine times, like many young people today, in different places. They've been to different places. You'll soon understand what I'm saying. So I told one of the guys, you know, I said, you have been everywhere. You have served in prison, and you have been in the army. So I want to ask you a question about these two interesting places. You've been in prison for a few years. He says, yeah. Yeah. The prison warden, 
He's a tough guy, huh? Said, oh, oh, was he nasty and tough? If we didn't follow the rules, he would report us. It was terrible. I said, tell me, after a few years, you're now out. Do you still call him every Erev Pesach? Every Erev Rosh I love you. How's life? Manishma? He says, you're crazy. On my dead body, I won't say hello to him. Such a nasty, I rush him, Okay. So you also in the army. Tell me about your commander, your mefaked, your commander. How was he? Oh, he was challenging. I still remember the first Friday. I didn't salute right. I had to do 300 push-ups. I said, what's your relationship? Now you added on, what's your relationship with your mefaked? He says, we're very close. We're very close. Explain to me. Both of these people in your life have challenged you very heavily. One, you call a nasty, wicked person. You would never say hello to him. And the other one, you consider yourself close to. But they both challenged you so heavily. They both penalized you. They both punished you. He says there was a difference. The prison warden did it to crush me. The commander in my platoon did it to strengthen me, to turn me into an awesome soldier. He turned me into a great soldier. I could see in his eyes there was a purpose here. There was meaning here. When you ask me to make a sacrifice, if you're going to put salt, great. If you're going to put yeast and honey, the Torah says no. If the sacrifice is here to impose itself on you, to make you smaller, to destroy you, to diminish you, stay away from such sacrifices. A sacrifice that's a sacrifice that has salt meaning, symbolizing the idea the sacrifice is here to challenge you, to stimulate you, for you to reach your maximum potential, for you to be able to become the person you're capable of becoming. That's a different type of sacrifice. Yes, may be hard, may be challenging, may be difficult, but the objective is not for me to a chelis on the contrary, to bring out who you are, to be able to actualize who you are in the fullest sense of the word. And I think the best example for this would be the relationship between the body and food. Today especially, a lot of people are into nutrition. You go to a nutritionist, or you go to your doctor, you go whoever guides you in eating, your wife, your husband, whoever it is, and they tell you that based on your blood type, or based on your condition, this food is absolutely lethal for you. So you say, but I was at the morning in the bris, and all of my friends were eating the croissants, and eating the cheesecake, and eating the marble cake, and eating the herring, and eating the spicy herring, and eating the jalapeno herring. That's for them. For you, it's the malach hamavaz Don't bother, come home. Just call up the chevra kaddish after you eat it. That's what every Jewish man hears at some point in his life. If you're going to eat that food, just call up the chevra kaddish and give yourself in. Instead of paying a mortgage next month, just rent a place somewhere else. Not so much worse than your house. It's also underground. Chas v'shalom. I'm just joking. So. So there's two types of people. One person tells the nutritionist, I'm a free man. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. My body is a free body. 
I express myself the way I want. I'm not going to make sacrifices. I'm not going to allow you to impose rules on me and tell me what, yeah, what not. I want to be free. Free means I eat what I want, how I want, when I want, where I want, as often as I want. Because I want. I'm a free man. Or a free woman. The person eats it. They eat the food. They're very, very free. There's only one problem. Ten minutes later, they're in a bad mood. They're heavy. They're lethargic. They're running into respectable places to take care of themselves. Their whole day is shot. They feel tired. They can't breathe. They're depressed. They need to go to sleep. They have no energy, no enthusiasm, no function. Why? Because they were in denial of the fact and the truth. The body has a design. The body has a makeup. The body has a chemistry. You have to respect it. What you're calling freedom is very superficial. On another level, it's abuse. You're abusing yourself. By not allowing yourself any limitations, you're denying yourself the greatest gift that you have. Your life, your energy, your imagination, your stimulation. On the other hand, the person who abstains from certain foods and engages in others, what they did was... They're eating foods that suit their design. It suits their makeup. It brings out their power. It stimulates their adrenaline. It releases the chemicals they need to enhance their mood and enhance their spirits. It gives them more energy, makes them less tired, less lethargic. What they would accomplish in two days, they accomplish in one hour. Makes them more social, more communicative, more open, more, more spirited, more happy. So what you, one person calls limitations... If it's a limitation, in order to honor who I am, in order to honor the design of my body, that's a limitation that simply respects the true dimensions of my reality and accentuates my reality rather than crushes it. And everybody understands this when it comes to nutrition. Here we can begin to understand what Hashem tells Moshe Asnei in Enuulka. Just as the body has certain just as the body has certain dimensions, certain makeup, certain sensitivities, certain needs, certain things that are helpful for it, certain things that harm it. A person is not just a physical body. The body is a very, very complex being. The same is true with a person's internal life, a person's mind, a person's soul, a person's consciousness. There's a very interesting technology our generation has merited uh, unique advances in technology one of them some of you have used it for very and uh, very helpful situations it's called laser technology what is laser technology the power of laser beams is extraordinary with the photons and laser technology the light of laser beams surgeons could perform surgery They can heal things in the body. They can penetrate surfaces surfaces and substances and create change through these laser beams that are absolutely extraordinary. What is laser technology? Every object emits light. The problem is the light goes in all directions. So the light, the power of the light is squandered. It goes here, it goes, it goes in all directions. What does laser technology do? It limits the light and allows and focuses and harnesses all the light to go in one direction, and that way it 
concentrates all of its power, all of its momentum, so that it actualizes all the power in the laser beams to be able to perform surgeries, to be able to perform incisions, to be able to split rocks, to be able to do surgeries in a human body, which was unheard of earlier in earlier generations. Why? Because the light wasn't allowed to go in all directions, it went in one direction. If you want to understand what Torah is, what mitzvah is, it's the spiritual laser technology. When you're limiting the light, are you limiting the light? On one level, you're telling the light, don't go here, don't go there, don't go there. But why? Because you want to be able to bring out the full power that is inherent in the light. You want that the light should be able to experience its full depth, its full momentum. So all of the limitations of the light, on one level, they're restrictions. But really what these restrictions are doing is they're allowing the light to shine in their full brightness and to have their deepest impact. And the same is true in human life. A life ungoverned, ungoverned by discipline, by any laws, has a lot of light, but I go in all directions. I do what I want. I eat what I want. I go where I want. I look at no limitations. Comes the turn and suddenly the Shasam Mitzvah 365 prohibiting laws. Besides 248, besides all of the rabbinic injunctions. A limit here, a limit there. Comes the mission and says, Are you joking? Who's free? The one who's engaged in Talmud Torah. That's freedom? The antithesis of freedom. The whole Torah is about, part of the Torah, this, yeah, this, not this, you might, it's Gzeda, Gzeda. So Gzeda for this. Ein l'chob and chayrin, it's the antithesis of freedom. In fact, in Yiddish, you say frum, and what's the opposite? Frei. What does frei mean? Free. Why is free? The word mutter means what? Untied, literally. What does asr mean? Tied. person who lives with the philosophy of mutter is untied. A person who lives with the philosophy of asr, metornish, 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 he's tied, he's in chains. Ein l'chob and A student once came to see me. And he, good, great, good mind, great mind, wonderful soul too, interesting person, been through a lot, also in life, very interesting person. Well, he was a young, a youngster, and uh, he came to see me. He was struggling with Yiddishkeit a lot. So I asked him, I said, what's, what's the big issue? What, what are your struggles? And he said, it's very simple. I just cherish freedom too much. You know, American is, America is based on freedom. <laughs> freedom is the highest ideal. He says, I cherish my freedom too much. I can't have anybody telling me that on Shabbos, I can't do this. And in the airport, I can't eat this. I just can't. I'm a free, I have to be free. Okay. Not a bad question. He had a hobby. He's a great violinist. Played the violin beautifully. You know, the violin is a very special instrument. Very special musical instruments. The fine, the fine tunes that it produces warm a soul. So I tell him, I said, You brought the violin with you? He says, Yeah. Said, Can I see your violin? Take the violin. Now he knew I know nothing about playing a violin. He learned by me in yeshiva, so he knew I have, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it, but I can't play it, unfortunately. 
maybe down the line, but I don't know how to play the violin. So I take the violin and I'm looking at the violin, and uh, I'm looking at the violin. I say, you mind passing me the scissor from the other side of the desk? Well, take the scissor. I take the scissor, and I place the scissor, it was a big scissor, on one of the cords of the violin. And I'm about to bring the two sides together, integrate the polar opposites of the scissor. Create synthesis and unity. He looks at me, he says, Rabbi, what are you doing? I say, you know, we learned together Gemara and Shabbos, Lamed Aleph. Hillel said, what's all of Torah? What you dislike to be done to you, don't do it to anybody else. You want freedom, you give other people freedom. You and I believe that there's consciousness in everything. You're in the physics, quantum mechanics, there's consciousness in everything, even in the chords of a violin. And I'm looking at these poor chords. They're tied down. They're in prison. And look how tight they're tied down. Is it fear? You come here to my office and you say, I want to be free. What you dislike to be done to you, don't do to your own chords. Don't do to your own violin strings. I'm going to take the scissor. And I'm going to be kind to your violin. I will finally remove their chains, remove their shackles. I will take them outside and in the beautiful breeze, the chords will begin swaying and dancing. And together we will declare together, free at last. Free at last. And I take the scissor and I continue with my uh, uniquely humanistic and ethical motions. The poor boys, Rabbi Jacobson, is like Meshuggah. You're crazy, what are you doing? You're destroying, it was an expensive violin too, which I knew. You're destroying my violin! So this is called destroying a violin? Because I want to set these chords free. They're tied. They must be suffering on their own level. On their own level. Let's set them free. He says, you can't do that. Stop. And he pulls it away. He says, what's wrong if I cut the chords? Why do they have to be tied down? What's going to happen if the chords are untied? You'll still have a violin. You'll have all the chords. They'll be untied. He says, Rabbi, where have you been raised? I say, tell me, what happens if the cords are untied? We loosen them up and we remove the knots. What's going to happen? He says, no music will come out. Very good. That was premeditated. (laughs) He says, Rabbi, no music. No music will come out. The music won't come out. There'll be chords, but there won't be music. I looked at him. I gave him a hug and I said, now listen to what you just said. You couldn't have given a more eloquent answer. When the chords are untied, the music will not be produced. You see, you're a nightingale. You're not a piece of meat. You're a nightingale. You're capable of producing extraordinary music. You have tremendous music in you. But if no chords are tied down in life, the one that will suffer most is your own music. Your innermost music, your innermost refinement, your innermost energy, your innermost creativity, wisdom, 
spirituality, sensitivity, emotions, soulfulness, artistic creativity, your ability for poetry and prose, for deep reason, for communication, for impacting, for loving and receiving love will be dulled, will be stifled. Just like if I say I'm going to eat whatever I want, it will not enhance me, it will cripple me. Just like in laser technology, by not allowing the light to go in all directions, you unleash your profoundest power. To the contrary, if it's the fire of God, it's not here to destroy. It's here to enhance, to ennoble, to actualize, to accentuate, to express. The Baal Shem Tev once said, Halacha is Rosh Hariu Lashem Kol Haaretz. Halacha is the acronym of Hariu Hey Lashem Kol Haaretz, which means let the whole world sing to God. What's the connection between Halacha and music? Where do you see in Halacha the concept of let the whole world sing to God? But I think now we have perspective. If you have the right perspective on halacha, you know what all of halacha is? Halacha is looking and seeking that everything in the world should produce its melody. Everything has a melody. A piece of meat has a melody. A drop of milk has a melody. Every item, every matter, every component, every day, every experience in the world has a melody. What halacha wants is that I should be able to produce my wholesome melody. My deepest song should be expressed in the profoundest way, broadest way, most powerful way, most potent way. So if I'm teaching my child Yiddishkeit, if I'm teaching my student Yiddishkeit, and what they're getting is that halacha, Torah, mitzvahs, God, religion, Shabbos, tefillin, mezuzah, kashras, tarasam, shpacha, stoka, davening, learning, whatever it may be, tzniyas, is here because of a mean, vicious system that wants people to conform and be in a ghetto. This has very little to do with the vision Moshe Rabbeinu experienced at the first moment. If my student and child is not experiencing in every seif in Shulchan Aruch, I want the whole world to be in synchronization with its own potential for the profoundest music. It should actually be fine-tuned like a chord. Be fine-tuned to be able to express the music. Then there's something flawed about how I understand and how I experience Yiddishkeit. Comes the Maharal, and the Maharal says, that's the reason that on Pesach, you're not allowed to eat yeast that's mixed into the flour and water, and we call this freedom. Isn't it fascinating? The holiday when we celebrate freedom has the most restrictions in the world. That's called cheres, unless you go to a hotel for Pesach. If you go to a hotel for Pesach, then shvuah, sukkahs, Pesach, Hanukkah, alzas, albazach. They have sushi with quinoa and pizza with I don't know what. It looks like bread, but I guess it's potato starch. We don't ask questions on the mashgiach. People pay too much money to ask questions. So this is the holiday, but if you don't go to a Pesach hotel, right? You actually do it, uh, do it the old way, the way they did it in Egypt. <laughs> so you clean your house. You clean your house, you eat the matzah, you eat the marer and everything. This is called cheres. 
This is called freedom. You can't eat this. You can't. Freedom means you eat, you party, you, you relax, you, you eat what you want. Maral says something incredible. He says, What's freedom? What's freedom? Let me ask you a question. If you have a musician, speaking about music, somebody who loves musical instruments, you take away all his musical instruments and you say, Here, you're going to live here. You're going to be provided with all you need. You don't have to work for another day in your life. You could sleep, you could do nothing. And you will have whatever you need. He says, no, 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 I need, I need my musical. And no, you have whatever you need. Is this a free person? He'll define himself as a slave. Why? Because his truest passions can't come out. He can't live up to his own true self. Freedom versus slavery doesn't mean how many responsibilities I have, or how many responsibilities I don't have. There could be a person who's a couch potato and doesn't have a single responsibility. I know many 17-year-olds like that. They don't have a single responsibility and worry in the world. They're not slaves. Is their truest self coming out? Why are they so depressed? Why do they all have attitudes? (laughs) If they're so happy. Not all, some. You You could be without any responsibility, but you're enslaved to what? You're enslaved to your instincts. You're enslaved to your addictions. That's not slavery. You're enslaved to your worst habits. You're enslaved to unhealthy desires that derail you from your own health emotionally, even physically, psychologically, spiritually. You're enslaved to peer pressure. I think I said the other day, there was a 104-year-old woman. They interviewed her in the newspaper and they asked her, what's the advantage of living to 104? She said, no peer pressure. (laughs) How much peer pressure is there around our society? How people dress. Why? Because this one, that one. What about even how to make a bar mitzvah? Based on how your neighbor made the bar mitzvah. You're a free person. That's called freedom. I may not be enslaved politically. I may not be enslaved in the old version of slavery. But it's all, I could be a free person. I'm a slave. I completely don't even know who I am. I'm scared of who I am. I don't even want to know who I am. I don't have the courage to know who I am. Says the Maharal, freedom is... Go back to the original bread and water. Freedom doesn't mean you have a lot of extras. Freedom is you have the original. You have the original. Don't mix me in no seori. Don't mix me in no dvash. Cherish the original. But for this, you have to, in order to appreciate Torah, you have to know who you are. If I see myself as a piece of meat, if I don't see myself as light, then laser technology is torturous. Then tying down the cords is torturous. A person has to be able to understand who they are. They have to appreciate their depth. They have to appreciate their existence. They have to appreciate their potential. They have to appreciate their music. If I could tell a story that Rabbi Shalom Mordechai Shvadron, the Yerushalayim Amagid used to say, he said it in a classic Yiddish, in his own Jerusalem-like Yiddish, I'll do a little bit of the Yiddish, but I'll also translate for those who don't have at least not an impeccable Yiddish yet. So he said, with a melody. A yeshiva boy once came to me and he said, Reb Shalom, Reb Shalom, life is unjust, life is unfair. I said, why is life unfair? He said, Reb Shalom, Mardichai, Reb Shalom, Mardichai, I am a very jealous man. Who are you jealous from? He said, I'm jealous of the cows 
of the animals, the dogs, the cats, the frogs. I'm jealous. He says, why are you jealous? And the boy tells me, the Bacha says, for one, they don't have to get dressed in the morning. I have to put on clothes in the morning. Number two, when they need to go to the bathroom, they don't have to search for a bathroom. Every place is suitable for them to go to the bathroom. And I have to go find the bathroom. Besides that, when they eat, they don't need a fork. They don't need a spoon. They don't need a knife. No tefillin, no shachris, no mincha, no maidiv, no benching, no shabbos, no yomtiv. I life is beautiful for them. And he says, the bocha heipt on vain. And the boy starts crying. And he says, Reboi noi shaloi, the master of the universe. God Almighty, why didn't you make me a behemoth? Why didn't you make me an animal? So he said, I told him, Bacher, Bacher, du hast nicht was zu weinen, du bist a My dear boy, my dear boy, you don't have a reason to cry. You are indeed a behemoth. You're an animal. So there's no question. There's no question. The same reality for one person is ultimate self-actualization. For the other person is ultimate self-subjugation. It depends if it's a prison warden or it's a commander-in-chief. If it's salt, or if it's yeast. If it's God's fire, or it's another fire. If I know who I am, or if I don't know who I am. Which now brings us to the next step of reward and punishment. Now, I think it's very important to take out from our brains an old CD <laughs> and throw it out in the garbage and we want to put in a new CD. And it's not easy to take out an old CD because the CD is there for a very long time even though it's scratched up and it's hard to hear a song on it but it's, it's easier to keep the old CD. But sometimes it's time to take out the old CD and put in the new CD. Reward and punishment. The truth is, the English words are a very poor translation of Scharanoinish. When we hear the word punishment, what are we hearing? Most of us, when you hear the word punishment, I'm going to punish you, what do you hear instinctively? Not when you come to a class about it or you think about it. Instinctively, what do you associate with the word punishment? Suffering, anger, Pain, vengeance, revenge, a bad temper. Not the vibe of That's a great sign. Maybe we should do a five week on uh, another topic. The men didn't hear the question, they're waiting for the next joke. It's fine, don't worry. They know in three minutes, Rabbi Waiwai will do another joke. It's fine. <laughs> Attention span today in most audiences is 12 seconds. Take it from experience. 12 second attention span. Anybody, the word punishment, what is it associated with? Trouble. Trouble. What else? 
Terror, okay. Oh, your parents, okay. Huh? Vindictiveness, a patch. Okay, a patch is very good. Huh? Russian, crushing, crushing. Okay. Bankrupt, okay. Guilt, fine. Wonderful words, right? And yet, let's understand this. For most of us, or for many of us, Hashem is so deeply connected to punishment. Din v'cheshben, ganeiden gehenem, schar v'oynish, mida keneged mida. So all these words, who are we associating these words with? You understand? So you want people to appreciate and love and be passionate about Amun, about Yiddishkeit, when we often don't have the courage to go and revisit our paradigms. The Yisoydas. Yisoyda, Yisoydas. You have to look at the pillars of the Yisoydas of Chinuch, of education. Because if we don't have the courage to revisit the paradigms, then often we build a building, but the infections have not been removed and they create toxicity. They create a negative energy in the whole edifice. So a person could be 70 years old, or 95 years old, or 45 years old, or 16 years old. And there's a lot of toxicity in their, in their religion, in their experience of Judaism. Shabbos, I was having a shluis with this, with saving the light. Somebody said, I asked the people, when do you punish your children? So one said, when I'm angry. The other said, when I lost patience. The third one, when I'm not feeling well. The next one, when I'm in a bad mood. The next one, when, I'm in a, when I feel I'm powerless and I have to control. Or when I lose it. So I said, now when do you think God punishes? <laughs> also in all these situations. Also in all these situations. So they looked at me. They said, that's what we were taught. And then somebody said something very, somebody wrote something very uh, vulnerable. They said, the way I experience Judaism emotionally is, God is looking for an opportunity to punish me. So he creates 613 commandments. He knows most of us will fail, and therefore will have an opportunity to punish. Okay, now that's pretty extreme. I know that's pretty extreme. But it's representative of a certain emotion. And even those of us who thank God, I should say, don't profess that emotion, but let's understand what certain people are experiencing. And why are they experiencing that? It's so important to understand that Khalila Vachas, you should understand reward and punishment in Judaism, ever, as something having to do with hate, revenge, anger, vengeance, the need to control, or the need to show you who's boss. All these qualities come from a common denominator, and it's called insecurity. You're not wholesome with yourself. You then make peace with yourself. So therefore, you're angry because you're powerless. You need to show who's boss because you feel weak. You lost yourself because you don't have self-control. You're exhausted because you have a horrible job, which God may have. All of these common denominators come from a state of very deep weakness, which is normal. We're human beings and we're weak. It's normal. But identify it. The worst thing is when somebody comes home and they vent 
And they let out all their rage and frustration on their children. And when you tell them why you're screaming, they say, it's chinuch. <laughs> this is education. It's not education. You need a vent. No problem. Take a bat. Go into the garage and bat your tire 378 times. And I'll give you a gematria. 378 times, bat it, then do the other tire, 419 times, and when you relax, come back home. Your kids are not the punching bag. Why are they the targets for your own venting and frustration? That's not chinuch. You need a vent, but they're not the targets. Vent on somebody else. Go to the gym and vent. Do 100 push-ups. If you don't like exercise, go eat. Vent that way. It's a much healthier way to vent. But why let it out on students or children? To associate punishment with all these emotions is a very grave injustice. So you'll say, what do you mean? But we all learned reward and punishment, Rabbi Jacobs, and what are you going to invent here, a new religion? So I'm going to tell you a story that happened with me and my socks. So I heard a speaker the other day, he said, I'm going to tell you a maiser shahoya kachoya just with a little poetic license of my own imagination. I have some issues with my feet, so I wear 100% cotton socks. But not that. I have a few layers. They're expensive and they're very comfortable. And it's hard to get them, so I have a few of them. And I wear them consistently. One day I finished giving a long speech, and when I finish I'm sweating, and my aroma is not of the highest quality, let's put it that way. It's not in the beginning of reyach nichoyach l'ashem, and not reyach nichoyach to the people around me. And the one who suffers most from this condition of sweat and smell is my sock, my poor socks. So I, one day I took my socks and I put it in the washing machine. And I filled it up with water. The water became hot. And then I poured in soap and chemicals. And then the action began. I pressed start. And the hakafas began. It began spinning, being shaken up down. It was going from one extreme to another extreme, submerged in the hot water and the chemicals for a long time. And God opened up the mouth of the zakalach. Hashem opened the mouth of my zakin. My, my dear socks turned to me, said, Rabbi, why, why? We have been your beloved socks, whom you used for months and years. We loved you. We thought you loved us. We let you step on us. We went with you wherever you went. And we were always on the bottom. We never got credit. You always stepped on us. We never got attention. We never got validation. But we were there. You know why? Because we're here for you. This is what you do to us. You take us. You throw us into hot boiling water. You pour chemicals. And now we're spinning around thousands and thousands of times. A little sensitivity. Such hypocrisy. In your speeches you speak about sensitivity. Such cruelty to your own socks. To your own donkey. 
You didn't hit us three times. You're spinning us thousands of times. For what? For when? So I turned to my holy socks. And I said, my dear holy friends, I love you very much. And my relationship with you has not changed. But I want to tell you something. When I bought you, you were so smooth. You were so clean. You were so pure. And you were such a geschmack to touch and to wear. And your smell was wonderful. And unfortunately, because I sweat a lot, and I speak a lot, and uh, other things happen during those processes, you're affected. All I want to do here is restore you to your original pristine glory, to your original purity, so that I can re-embrace you and place you on my feet. And we can enjoy a wonderful relationship where you will take me to the most beautiful places in the world and to the most beautiful people in the world. And my socks embraced me and we have had a wonderful relationship since. God is in love with you. Every one of our children, every Jew, every person, every student needs to know the greatest fan you'll ever have in life is your creator. He loves you. He's mad about you. Why would he punish you? Why would you punish someone you love unconditionally with all your heart? Why would you ever punish them? If you're weak, if you're angry, if you lose control, if you have to show who's boss, if you need a vent, if you're powerless, if you want to take revenge, because that's when you punish why would Hashem, who loves you unconditionally, and nothing will ever t- change that love, even if you make mistakes? It's like your child. When you're a healthy, wholesome father or mother, do you punish? Who punishes? Why do you punish? The word punishment is not a word we should use, use because we don't get it. Never be afraid of God's punishment. Afraid in the simple sense of the term. Because every punishment that Torah speaks about is always about the same thing. Absolute sensitivity and love to that particular person. Let me describe to you what the Baal Shem Tev once said about Gehenim. The big punishment we call Gehenim. You know how you say Gehenim in English? Purgatory, or if you want hell. What do you understand happens in purgatory? What happens there? You ever there? Anybody? Huh? You can imagine what it's like? The way we understand it is, you sinned. Somebody described to me in an email what somebody told them what's going to happen to them. Certain parts of their body are going to be put in a, in, a, in a bucket of hot water and going to burn. I don't know how to break this to you. But uh, if that's what you were looking forward to, it's not going to happen. You know what Gehenna is? I'll tell you what Gehenna is really, really, really. It's therapy. Gehenna is therapy. Is therapy painful? The men won't say. Is therapy painful? Yes. Is it good? <laughs> if you have a good therapist. God is a good therapist. 
Of course therapy is painful. You know why it's painful? Taking out a splinter is painful. Revealing emotions that are sitting in my heart and repressing me for 42 years are painful. Dealing with demons, skeletons, and ghosts that are crushing me and not letting me breathe and live and be happy is painful. Talking about my emotions vulnerably and nakedly is painful. But it's the best thing in the world. Hashem will never take a soul and punish it and crush it and destroy it. I'm going to teach you a lesson, you maneuver. On January 7th, 2016, I saw what you did after supper. Get out of my life. Go to the barbecue forever. You and Achav and Pari and Nebuchadnezzar and Titus and you'll be under them. That God never existed. That God doesn't exist. That God won't exist. That's not a boy chebami so ba'ava ava soilo maftonu. Doesn't exist. Schaivoinis, yeah, but what is it? The soul is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most powerful thing in the world. But sometimes I stain it up. It's sweaty, it's smelly. Not because it's really sweaty and smelly. It's like my socks. A little more sensitive than my socks. A little more beautiful than my socks. A little more powerful than my socks. I just give a brute example to illustrate. All the processes of Olam Abba of Ganem is there one thing. To help it spit out all accessories, all toxicity, all garbage. It's what good therapy does. I'm talking about a good therapist. He takes out everything. Gershon is like a cotton chanel dummy. Imagine walking around life with two washing machines on one shoulder and another one on another shoulder. How free can you be? You know there's people who walk around their whole life with two washing machines on their shoulders. You could see it in their eyes. One washing machine here and one washing machine here and they don't even know it. And then it's taken off. Wow. I remember the first time I put on glasses. I didn't know I couldn't see. I put on glasses and I saw. I was like, wow, I didn't know I was blind. Is it a painful process? Of course, but it's the best pain in the world. It's the pain of removing all of the things that have amassed in your system and are now allowing you to shine and not allowing you to glow. Here's the way the Baal Shem Tov defined Gan Eden and Gehenna. He said, when a person comes up, of course, I wish you all to live a thousand years, but when the soul comes up to heaven, so we understand you go to paradise, you go to purgatory, you go for a month, you go for 11 months, his son will hopefully say Kaddish and will get you out of the barbecue a little early. When you come up to having an Eden and Gehenim, what happens is they show you two videos. The Washington didn't use the word videos. I'm using my own words. They show you two videos. You know what the two videos are? One video is basically a video of the way you lived. The other video is a video of the way you could have lived. One video tells you who you were. And one video tells you who you really were. Who you were called to be. What your potential was. If both videos match, you're in Gan Eden. And if the videos don't match, that's hell. It's the shame. It's the deep pain of the fact that how did I not know who I was? How did I not live who I was? And in order for me to be able to be back, to be able to go back to who I am, 
There's certain processes. But never be fearful that you're dealing with a monster. You're dealing with the one who loves you more than anything else. The Baal Shem Tev said that Hashem loves a Jew more than parents love their only child who was born when they were already an elderly couple. One can imagine the love that you have to a single child, a ben yachid, who was born to you when you were an older person. And he said the love is far greater. The Mezit Shemagit said, Jews would kiss a Sefer with the passion that my Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tev, used to kiss the Jewish children. The Baal Shem Tev was basically a bus driver. There were no buses, but he used to bring children back and to from school. And I always wondered, if he wanted to deal with education, why didn't he become a teacher? Why a bus driver? You know why? Because on the bus, you can tell children things that in class they won't listen to. Because it's unofficial. When the Baal was walking to them with school, he told them everything they had to know about Yiddishkeit. Already in the classroom, Zogbeis, Nein, Arois. And remember 300 years ago, it was before ADD, PDHD, a therapist for this, a therapist for that, therapist for that, you get special attention, you go home for four months. In those days, the Baal there was one therapy for everybody. You know that. It existed till a few years ago. The ear was pulled till the kisse hakavit. And somehow everyone came back to learning. I'm not going into who was right and who's wrong. That's a whole separate parsha. But the Baal Shem knew on the way to school, there's no principle to do with, there's no systems, there's no bylaws, there's no boards. On the way to school, there's no boards. You could speak to children soul to soul. But the point is, you hear a description of Ganeiden and Gehenem. What is it? It's the shame. When I'm in therapy and I learn certain things about myself, I'm ashamed in a good way. How can I say a law yesterday? How was I so stupid? How was I so narrow? How did I so underestimate myself? How did I live in prison for so long? That's a good thing. Don't be afraid of Gehenem. If it's God giving it to you, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. It's the best thing that ever happened to you. Take a look in the source sheet and you'll see my whole lecture in a few lines in Madrash. If you don't have one, look with your friend. You can look with your friend. I'll read it. It's one paragraph. It'll be also posted on the, on the website, the yeshiva.net. It always has the source sheets. So you could look at it laughter also. Tana de Veleo, Perik Yudalit. Chapter 14. You know what Tana de Veleo is? Tana de Veleo is an extraordinary sefer. According to Chazal, the Gemara says it was composed by Leo Anovi. Very interesting sefer, a lot of ideas and stories. But here's one piece. Leo Anovi describes a journey that he took and he had a conversation with a Jew. Oh my lead, this Jew tells me, Rebbe, listen to this, Rebbe, Rebbe, my Rebbe, Leo. There are two things in the world. And I love them in my heart with complete love. There's two things in the world that you say, I love these two things with absolute, complete love. What are the two things this Jew loves? Torah v'Yisrael. I love Torah and I love Yiddish Shekinda. I love Jews. But I have a question. 
אבל אין היא יודעה, איך וייסנשט, איזה מהם קודם. Which comes first. I love them both, unequivocally, absolutely, but I don't know which comes first. Do I love Torah and then the Jewish people? Do I love the Jewish people and then Torah? Amar Tiloi, Eliyahu Anovi says, I told this Jew, Bni, my son, Darkon shal bnei Adam oimrim ha-Torah kadma. The derech, the path of ordinary people is, they say, we love Torah and the Jews, but Torah comes first. And they of course have a Pasuk, everybody has a Pasuk for everything. Hashem, Kanoni, Reish, is Darkoi. Avol, Aniyoymer. But me, I, Eliyohanovi, Ichzog, I say, Yisrael Kadmo. The Jewish people precede Torah. What's the, what's the argument here? What's the question? I love them both, but I have a question. Here you have two shittas. And Elio Anavi says, most Jews will tell you something else. But I'm telling you something. Elio Anavi is saying something else. What are these two paths? It's really two paths. And Elio Anavi doesn't say the first path is horrible and wrong. So that's what a lot of people will tell you. Roiv b'nei Adam, the majority of people. Avalani oimer, something else. It's not just a ton of the Be'elio. If a person says there may have been a mistake there. Same thing says in Madrish Rabbah, Parsha Aleph, Piskadalit, Machshaftan Shayu Salkad Malachal Dover. The same thing says in Kohelis Rabbah, by Rab Shimon Bayechoi. Rab Shimon Bayechoi, on the Posak Yimea Eitz Kimea Ami, Rab Shimon says the same thing. So we have this in three places in Madrish and Chazal. Same thing. What's the idea? The idea is you could look at Judaism in two ways. You could see Judaism as preceding the Jewish people. You could see the Jewish people as preceding Judaism. What's the argument? There's a very deep argument. You could say as follows. The objective in life is Torah. That's first. But in order to have Torah, Torah has a mitzvah of Shabbos. You need a Jew to keep Shabbos. Torah has a mitzvah called lulav. You know, Judah take a lulav. Torah has a mitzvah called davening. Torah has tefillin. Torah has kashras. Torah has muktzah. Torah has erivin. Torah has kachim. Torah has tumen Torah has krishma. You need somebody to live Torah, to implement Torah. So in order to be able to have Torah, you have a Jew. So the Jew is here to serve Torah. So that means what justifies the Jewish existence? What gives the Jew value? That he or she implements Torah. What if Khalila Jew doesn't? So you say, nobody home, nothing doing. Unless we hope, maybe one day he'll do tshuva. One day he'll return. One day he'll come back. One day maybe he, will, he or she will be liberated, liberated. Maybe in this world, maybe in the next world. Okay, and then he will be, have their tikkun. That's a perspective. And it's a perspective in many ways that we carry. Many generations have carried, consciously or subconsciously. But Elio Anavi says, Rebid, Ani I want to teach you something. Ani Yisrael Kodmu. Let me tell you something. Starts the other way around. Hashem loves the Jew absolutely, infinitely, unequivocally, unconditionally. Like a mother loves a child, like a father loves a child. There's no such a thing that it ever happened with your child. Yeah, You have a little boy, 
and he's a little terrorist, Kaminig of a good kid. He's four years old, he's driving you crazy. And you turn to your husband, you say, you know what? It's been crazy with this boy. We're going to give him another year. If he shapes up, we keep him. If not, there's plenty of places to give him up to. I know it happens, but it's a tragedy when it happens. Functional parents don't even think this way. This child is never leaving. It's mine forever. He's mine forever. It may be challenging. I may have to figure out some stuff. I may have to run from one professional to another professional for the next 39 years. But this is mine. This is my boy. It's not conditional. If you behave, I love you. If you don't behave, I discard you. There's no such a thing. There's nothing you can do that will make you, that will make me stop loving you. We're talking here again about a functional, healthy, wholesome, and empowered parent. I know reality is sometimes a little different. And that's why parents and children have such a special relationship. Because it's non-negotiable. It's not like, if in the next year you prove yourself, then I'll keep you in the house. But if in the next year you don't prove yourself, I throw you out. As much as this is true with parents, quadruple this infinitely, and then you'll begin to understand Judaism. The love of Hashem to a person, to a Jew, is non-negotiable, it's absolute, it's unequivocal. There's nothing you can do that can tarnish this love. I'm going to quote the Rebbe Reb Melech. The Rebbe Reb Melech, the Noyem Eli Melech, once. The Mezitsha Magid had Talmidim who were there all night by him, around his room. And he was there once, Bechatzoy Salayla, in the middle of the night, the Zoyar says in the middle of the night, the, the doors of heaven open up. Pischa the Mesifta the Rakia open up. And Reb Melech was sitting there. And the Mesitcha Magid came out and he said, I'm going to say it in Yiddish. Herst Melech was Mesokta Mesifta the Rakia. You hear Melech what they say tonight in the Yeshiva of heaven. Halavai. Halavai Jews should love a perfect tzaddik with the same love that God loves every Jew. Even the Jew who made all the mistakes in the world. Doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. Doesn't mean he didn't sin. Doesn't mean he doesn't need cleansing. But it means that the love, untarnished, impeccable. And there are makrab, Moshe Kodavar wrote a sefer, Toymedvayra, where he says this generations before the Rebbe of Melech of Lezhansk, before the school of Hasidus. Or as Reb Meir put it in Mesech the Kedushin, Ben Kach or Ben Kach, if you don't know it from the Gemara, at least you know it from the song. But I think the Gemara was written before the song, if I'm not mistaken. Ani Yisrael Kadmu. God is absolutely in love with the Jew, connected with Advekas 24-7, can't be tarnished, can't be changed. And there's nothing you need to do to deserve the love. Like your child doesn't have to come on with a good report card so that you should love them. Chas v'shalom. Your child you love. You hope to have it. It's great to have a good report card. And if not, okay. It's unconditional. Hashem is the same thing. So then what's Torah? Torah is not here to vindicate the Jew, to make him worse. What's Torah? I love you so much. I want to give you an opportunity. The opportunity is, I want to give you an opportunity, you should be able to live with this love. You should be able to breathe this love. You should be able to experience this intimacy with me 
in your whole life. I want you to be able to operate on your optimal chords. I want you to fine-tune your entire system to be able to play your most beautiful music, which is absolutely one with me, constantly. And every mitzvah allows you to play that music. Every nekudah of Torah is here to be able to allow you to experience our relationship in the fullest sense of the word, whether it's davening, whether it's learning. Whether it's a blad gemara, whether it's a sifin shulchan aruch, whether it's a marsha or a toisvus, whether it's a shabbos or a yomtith. Every nekudah of Torah mitzvahs is here to be able to help you experience that love. To help you actualize your truest and deepest self. To help you bring out yourself in the deepest way. Vani yoimer, Yisrael kadmu. Torah is here to be able to give the Jew the greatest, deepest, most powerful life. The greatest and deepest and most powerful experience. So this boy writes to me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, they say Mashiach might be coming soon. I am frightened. I heard that when Mashiach comes is going to be the big day of judgment. And I know what awaits me. I hope he doesn't come. I was told that every mitzvah I do brings Mashiach closer. That's why I stopped doing mitzvahs. Because I hope that by not doing mitzvahs, he will not come closer and I won't be punished. You're laughing. But this is what a 15-year-old communicated to me. To me. I actually also met him as well. I want to tell you, young man, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to tell you what, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. And not because I'm a prophet, but because I read the Tanah of Eliyahu. This is what's going to happen. I'll give you a simple metaphor. One day, Be'ezer Hashem, I don't know if you're watching it live or you'll watch it later. You may be sitting in the crowd, wherever you are. Or whoever had similar questions. One day, God willing, you'll get married. Now imagine you're married. It's a wonderful marriage. Or any couple, it's a wonderful marriage. And the husband turns to the wife and says, My dear Ebbetson, I gotta leave for a little while. Hold on, I'll be back. But by the way, I'm starving. Could you make me something delicious? Like, you know, she says, Sure, I put up soup. Five minutes, the soup will be ready. He says, Beautiful, beautiful. I'm so happy. I'm looking, What type of soup? What type? French onion soup. Wonderful. My favorite soup, just like my mother used to make. I'll be, I'll be leaving the house. I'll see you later. Hold on. Chazak, chazak. He leaves the house. The soup is ready in five minutes. She takes out the bowl. She takes out the ladle. She fills up a full bowl of soup. She knows her husband has an appetite. She places it in front of on his table where he sits with a beautiful, beautiful placemat. The, the kitchen is clean. The table is clean. The chair is clean. And she waits for his arrival. Hayele de nanu. So that's not a big surprise by a Jewish husband. Five minutes is three hours. Three hours means six days. Three hours pass, six days pass, a month passes. She waits, she waits, she waits. Two thousand years pass. Two thousand years pass. And the wife is waiting. She's waiting because he said, I'm coming back. 2,000 years later, he walks in the door. 
she looks at him. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom. The soup is there. He sits down and he looks at the soup. He takes a spoon, he puts it in the soup. He puts the spoon near his mouth. Now multiple choice. If you were that husband, would you say, Hey, the soup is cold. Is that what you would say? Or what do you think the husband would say? Wow. You're still here with the soup? With my soup 2,000 years later? Wow. I said, when Mashiach comes, God will not say, the soup is cold. This is a davenen. This is a lenin. This is a yid. The worst generation ever. Amol, amol, amol. This is the worst generation ever. Look at them. The soup is cold. It's horrible. I'm not, take this soup and give it to your enemies. I wouldn't feed it to my enemies. This is garbage soup. This is loyutzlach soup. That's not what he's going to say. You know what he's going to say? He's going to embrace you. He's going to kiss you. And as he embraces you, he's going to say one word. Wow, 2,000 years later, you're here with the soup? You're here with the soup? I can't believe this. I knew when I married you 3,300 years ago that it was a good deal. Have a wonderful week. French onion. Yeah. Not today, but yesterday. Gonna, That's why it came to my mind. I'm going to label this year. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the guy says to his wife, calls him, when are you going to be home? I'm planning to be home at 9 o'clock. I know I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.